Welcome to GDN's Talking Comics interview. On today's show, we welcome iconic comic creator Brian Talbot. Brian has been entertaining fans and impressing his peers for over 40 years. Now he is offering an extensive look into his life and work with Brian Talbot, father of the British graphic novel with J.D. Harlock, which has just started its Zoop campaign. Now, here's your host, Martin Sexton. Welcome once again to another edition of GVN's Talking Comics Interview. I am, as always, your host, Martin. And today I have the honor of welcoming legendary comic creator Brian Talbot. Brian has been creating and entertaining comic fans for over 40 years with his diverse storytelling and intelligent works. But now he is putting the finishing touches on his book, Brian Talbot, the father of the British graphic novel, along with J.D. Harlock. This autobiography touches on his extensive career with behind-the-scenes stories and photos and has just started its Zoop campaign. So let's welcome legendary comic creator Brian Talbot to GVN's Talking Comics. Thank you for so much for giving us some of your time, Brian. Uh, it's a real honor talking to you. How are you doing today? Okay, thanks. Thanks. No, no trouble joining yourself. <laughs> All right, I appreciate it. Okay, so... Uh, you started, like I said, back in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, basically starting out in the underground comics uh, scene. What was it about the underground comics that appealed to you? It was the mid-70s when I was first published by uh, Underground Comics. It Well, I, I loved them when I was um, when I was a teenager, you know, the American undergrounds. Uh, you know, Robert Crumb, Gilbert Shelton, Greg Irons, Rick Veach, who I eventually worked with on the NAS. Um, they were just amazing things. I mean, I was into comics anyway. You know, I was a big Marvel fan at the time. And uh, these, uh, you know, the American undergrounds came along and they, well, what they did was they reclaimed comics as an adult medium, you know, because mm -hmm. even you know, Marvel comics at the time, they were aimed at 14-year-old boys, you know. Um, and uh, they led directly to the graphic novels of today, those underground comics. Um, I was a big fan of them, and then alternative comics when they started coming out in the in the seventies. You know, I started getting hey. Metal Along when it came out. Um, you know, the French magazine that became Heavy Metal. But, wow. uh, yeah. Okay, so in nineteen seventy eight, you uh, did your adventures of Luther Arkwright. And of course, it's still popular today. You know, after all this time, did you consider back when you were first creating this that it would uh, maintain the kind of popularity it has up till now? Well, no. I mean, especially seeing there's been sort of about twenty years in between books, right? <laughs> uh, as you know, the the new ones just come out, the uh, Legend of Luther Arkwright, last month, um, and there's twenty two year gap in between that and the last one. Hard to remember. No, at the time I was. I, I was very deliberately trying to do a graphic novel for, you know, an intelligent science fiction adventure story for, for adults. And in the late 70s, I mean, if you look at the mainstream comics, then you'd see they were very, very bland and still aimed at, at, at kids, really. Um, you know, when when somebody was shot, there was no blood, nobody swore, nobody had sex, you know, right. etc. You know, Jim Steranko was told off for showing a, a suggestive gun in a holster. issue <laughs> <laughs> of S.H.I.E.L.D., if you remember. Um, and I was watching, you know, movies like Apocalypse Now, these fantastic movies, you know, um, Straw Dogs, Clockwork Orange, stuff like this, The Exorcist. 
And I'm thinking, well, I can see this stuff in movies. I can read it in novels. Why can I not see it in comics? So I wanted to do basically a straight, you know, adventure story for um, for adults. But it was, I wanted to make it interesting. And as you, if you've seen it, you no doubt know it's incredibly, uh, at the time, uh, experimental when I did it. And um, it starts off not in a non-linear manner. And the further along the story we get, the more and more, I said I would plan it all plotted out at the beginning, you know, the more the pieces fall into place and the faster the story gets. That was the idea behind it. Okay, so it was during the late 1980s, early 1990s that you started to branch out into the more mainstream publications, uh, working with 2000 AD and stories like Nemesis the Warlock and Judge Dredd. But you also produced a well-received four-issue limited series uh, the Tale of One Bad Rat, which I found quite interesting. It was printed by Dark uh, Horse. Uh, this was a powerful story dealing with the like the underpinnings of sexual abuse. So what inspired this story and the decision to explore that issue? It's It was one of those cases where you start working on a story and it takes you somewhere you never even thought you were going to go uh, at the beginning. I Originally, I started off, um, I started it, because I'd had a long-standing desire to have a graphic novel, do a graphic novel set in the English Lake District. And I was looking at all sorts of different ways of trying to do it, and I, I just couldn't. And I, I, um, and I, one day we visited Beatrix Potter's cottage, which is in the Lake District, which is still there. You can go and visit it. It's like just like she left it in 1943, you know, um, when she died. And uh, we were visiting it, and I thought, well, Beatrix Potter, you know, here's somebody who made a living uh, by writing stories and drawing pictures to go with them. That's what I do. And I thought that's a connection with comics. Um, so I started researching Beatrix Potter. I knew nothing about her. I mean, I hadn't even read her books when I was a child. And I read her entire works. Um, I read about a dozen books on her. And by the time I finished, I, I thought this could be a very boring graphic novel. It was just it's about Beatrix Potter's life because <laughs> it wasn't terrifically interesting. And I don't know if you saw there was a movie came out about ten years ago now, I think, called Miss Potter about right. her, and they made it interesting by just making things up <laughs> that didn't happen to her. <laughs> um, so anyway, it was just sitting there in my mind, it's about Beatrix Potter in the Lake District. And one day I went on to the. I was in London. And I went on the tube. And there's this girl sitting on the platform begging with this little sign saying, hungry and homeless, please help. And she, this guy talking to her, trying to get her to go somewhere, a sort of to a hostel or something like that. And she just looked incredibly shy. And she wanted to, you know, like she wanted the ground to open up and swallow her. Um, she And she just put me in. I was walking out the tube station and I, I began thinking of Beatrix Potter, who at the age of 16 was described as painfully shy. And tongue tied, tongue tied in the in the mm -hmm. presence of of, of anybody, <laughs> uh, and I thought, well, perhaps this girl has some sort of synchronistic connection with Beatrix Potter, and this takes her to the Lake District. So I started, and it that became the first scene actually. This her begging in the in the uh, station, and um, I thought, well, why should why should run away from home? And I thought, well, father's been abusing her. It was just like that. And I thought, well, that was fair enough because a lot of kids do run away from home because they've been abused. A lot of them end up in London begging on the streets. 
And I thought, well, now I've got to research child abuse. So I started, I read a dozen books on the subject. And by the time I'd finished that, I thought this is far too important to just be a reason for a leaving home. This is what the book has to be about. It became its raison d'etre, you know, and um, it's so it's about, I mean, I try my best not to make, it's not titillating at all. There's only one scene of abuse shown and then that's just shown by showing father's face. And it's it's not about the abuse as much as the psychological after effects of abuse and trying to recover from them. Okay, so I noticed on that particular book, I mean, you did it basically did it all. You wrote it, you drew it, you le even lettered it. Uh, no, I think it was lettered by Ellie Deville, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, okay. As I say, because normally that kind of you know all inclusive work doesn't really happen as much much anymore. Uh, you know, you have someone who does the inking, someone who does a little bit of everything. It's getting, it's actually, I say that, take that back. It's getting a little more where uh, artists will do their own inking. Uh, I know back in the day, back in the early days of Marvel, I mean, basically, right, you had separate things for everything. One guy yes. did a pencil, one guy did the inker, whatever. Okay, uh, so, and I say also in the 1990s, you started working for DC uh, and you know, like Hellraiser, Batman, Legends of the Dark Knight, and of course, Neil Gaiman, Sandman, which of course is now kind of back in vogue because of Netflix uh, adaptation of it. Uh, what was, uh, how did your collaboration with Neil Gaiman come about? Well, I, I knew Neil when, when he was a journalist, before he was a, a, a fiction author. Um, he used, to, and he was into comics, he used to come to the comic conventions. He'd interview Alan Moore or something like that. Very often, a couple of times, I think I was actually there in the room while he was interviewing um so i knew him from the from the scene and when he first started writing comic strips i i drew one or two of them you know one of his early short strips when your skin feels nourished and glows you radiate confidence osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean clinically proven mega moisture duo this seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Um, that were in alternative mag magazines and things like um, ARG, you know, the Artists Against Rampant Government Homophobia, the, the one that Alan Moore published. Um, so I, I worked with him on several short strips, and by the time someone got to issue 30, he, he specifically asked for me as the artist, and I drew, I drew a few of the Sandman stories after that. Uh, so I also noticed, of course, you know, you have worked quite extensively lately with your wife, Mary, which, uh, uh, you know, some people would say that it's kind of hard to work with your spouse, <laughs> uh, but uh, apparently that's not a bit of a problem for you. Uh, uh, so was it? On the initial project, was it difficult to talk your wife into uh, tackling a graphic novel? No, not really. I mean, she, all, all of professional life, we've been in two different worlds, professional worlds. And right. then about 12 years ago or so, she took her retirement for academia. And she'd written a string of academic textbooks that are quite big sellers, a couple of them in the academic field, including language and gender, which is now in its, just recently gone into its third edition. Um, and anyway, she took her retirement. And one night we were just, we were sitting around watching TV and I, I just said to her, you had a glass of wine, I think. And, uh, I said, Hey, how about you write a graphic novel? Now you're retired and I'm drawing it. And she said, really? I said, yeah, yeah, go on, have a go at it. 
And to cut a long story short, she did do. And it became the first British graphic novel to win a major literary award. You know, it won the Costa Biography Award for 2012. And we've done four since then together. And I'm actually currently, I'm something like three quarters of the way through drawing a fifth book, which is uh, a biography of Leonora Carrington, a surrealist painter. Okay, so like I said, so you're 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 putting out your book, Brian Talbert, the father of the British graphic novel, uh, and you're doing this along with J.D. Harlick. Uh, how did your collaboration with J.D. get started? It was uh, he emailed me through my website, which anybody can do, um, and he's he's a big fan of my work, and he knew it inside out, and he proposed that. Well, he asked me. He said, "Can I write your biography?" And I said, yeah, sure. So I was very flattered, you know, so we want to write it. So we started work on it. And obviously there's huge holes in my life and about things about me that aren't in articles or interviews or anything like that. And he was starting to ask, he sent me emails asking questions and, things, and, and we were talking about, oh, perhaps we can have a couple of Zoom interviews and I can tell him stuff. And the, the, the more it went on, it became pretty obvious that I had to sort of work, work on it with him. So I ended up writing the bits that he couldn't write, you know, the bits about my life, personal stuff, all, the, all this stuff. I want his name to be first on the but I mean, I've written at least as much as he has, but I I wanted his name to be there first. Jad insisted that um, my name was first because he, he said nobody's heard of me. You know? <laughs> Well, there is that. Uh, okay, so uh, now you—if I understand correctly—you've been kind of working on this for like a two-year span. Uh, mm -hmm. During this time, as you've been, you know, reminiscing and, and exploring different areas, do you think you learned anything about yourself that you may have not, you know, not realized as you've been going through it? I think, yeah. I mean, I always, I always just think of myself as basically a very, very lazy person, actually. But actually, looking at my professional life, I've produced quite a lot and you know spent many hours working till two in the morning and I, I work seven days a week anyway till nine at night now these days um yeah over this last two years I've been I've been stopping work at half seven something like that and then working an hour and a half on the biography um so that's how I managed to do it <laughs> in two years and still carry on drawing Okay, so uh, one of the things that I, you know, as I read through the book that um, I, I love about you is you're basically very similar to myself in that, you know, you start, was a comic lover from an early age, and you absorbed all different kinds of genres and different uh, types of comics. Do you think that some of that diversity uh, inspired some of your own work? Well, definitely, yes. I mean, you know, because there are, as you know, a lot of uh, comic uh, artists and writers, they've only read superhero comics, they only read, you know, I've read all sorts of comics, everything. And not just comics, you know, books and different sort of films, you know, non-genre films. Um so I think I think that's what's given me, you know, I mean some of my influences, artistic influences, are things like, you know, William Hogarth, you know, the 18th century British illustrator and painter, and uh, Gustav Dory and Arthur Rackham, people like that. He's also a big influence on Charlie Bess, actually, Arthur Rackham. Um, so I've got, I've got, I do have a lots of different sort of influences, which I hope makes my work a bit different from, you know, any, anybody else's. 
Okay, so when readers go through your book, there are so many pictures of you and other iconic creators uh, taken during your illustrious career. You know, names like Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, Jim Steranko, as you had mentioned previously. But during those opportunities, were there any creators that might have even intimidated you or that you or did you find that you had more similarities and differences as you talked to them? Uh, no, I, I've always found them. I, I, I don't think there's a single one who... To think of it. I mean, Gil Kane, I think, but then it wasn't him, it was me. I was going, oh my God, it's Gil Kane, you know. <laughs> right. um, but uh, yeah, I mean, when I was about 30 and I was just started really, and I was really broke and I'd, I'd done outright and I wasn't making a penny. And um, I was suddenly invited to the Luca Festival in Italy. And I had to I had to go by train because I couldn't afford the air flight. This was before budget airlines, you know, um, which took about thirty six hours. And uh, anyway, I I was there, and I thought I went basically because oh, perhaps I might get a job. You know, I didn't. I was asking all the publishers if they had any work. You no, know, um, nobody knew me. But I met you know Morbius, Jean Giraud, and Milo Manara, and Hugo Pratt. And these people, they would, they would treat him like a colleague. Not like, you know, they would, and I came back from that trip and I saw, well, while I was there, I saw the wealth of European material, all the different genres they have in uh, in Europe and these fantastic albums that they sell. And I came back sort of evangelical, saying, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make a living doing comics. And within about a year or two, I, was, I went self-employed and I've been self-employed doing nothing but comics for 40 years now, 40 odd years. Say, and that's the one thing I've found about the comic creators, you know, even now that every one of them I've ever talked to have been just so open and, and friendly mm -hmm. about, you know, willing to share their time and tell you about what they do. That's uh, why uh, when I go to conventions, the, the creators is where I first go because because they're great. OK, so you are working with uh, the folks, the good folks at Zoop on this campaign for your book. Uh, is this your first such crowdfunding campaign? It is, actually. Well, um. Not technically, because a month or two ago, um, uh, Drew Ford, he started, it's called It's Alive Publishing, that yeah. they launched a crowdfunding campaign to republish the NAS, which I did with Tom Beach in, in the 90s, and that's coming out this year. But I didn't have anything to do with that campaign, really. At least so Drew put it all together himself and everything. Whereas with the Zoop guys, we've been talking a lot about it and... Um, yeah, I'll be interested to see how it goes because it's the first time done anything like that. Uh, well, I have no doubt that it'll it'll go well. Well, that's about all I've got for you, Brian. But before I let you go, I want to give you an opportunity to promote any other projects that you might have going on that you can talk about. And where can folks go to follow you uh, on the web? I, if you just do a search for Brian Talbot, the Y in it, you'll probably find my BrianTalbot.com. You'll find my website. Um, the only thing I can promote really is the well, the, the Legend of Luther Outright, which was right. published last month. There is a, you you probably won't be able to see it, but there's a, an exhibition, four-month exhibition in London at the moment at the London the Cartoon Museum, which is um, artwork, uh, ephemera, props from the books, like his Vibro Beamer and things like this, um, sketches, colour guides, all sorts of things. That's on for about four months, for anybody who can get to that. Um but yes, the, the the new book, which isn't published in America yet, I think Dark Horse are publishing in it 
either at the end of this year or the beginning of next. I know they're putting it together now, so it'll be out there pretty soon. Very good. All right. Well, I thank you for your again for your time, Brian, and uh, we'll be following your book very closely, and uh, hopefully talk to you again somewhere down the line. Okay. Hope right. to see. You. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to GVN's Talking Comics. Please come back again. Talking Comics is a production of Geek Vibes Nation.